As a kid being raised in the church, I would hear the question pretty frequently. The question of, well, yes, Jesus is your Savior, but is he also your Lord? Which, looking back, it's such a crazy question to ask, to act as if you can separate Jesus' salvation and his role as Savior from his role as our Lord, Master, and King. It would be like, you know, pardon the silly illustration, but it'd be like saying to someone who's eating sweet and sour chicken from a Chinese restaurant, right? Are you going to eat the sweet or are you going to eat the sweet and the sour as well? Well, of course, you can't separate it out, right? That The two are together, they're combined, they're one. And again, in the cheesy illustration, it's the same with Jesus, right? Jesus is both Savior and He is Lord. That's who He is. So if you worship Him, if He's your Savior, then you also must have Him as your Lord. There's no way to separate those two things out. And this Psalm, Psalm 24, reminds us of that truth as it's looking at this idea of, well, who's going to be the one who can ascend to the hill of God, the mountain of God? Well, it's got to be this one who is pure in heart, who has the power to save, who is the Lord, the creator of everything. All of these are combined together. Now, traditionally, this psalm was sung by Christians on Ascension Day, which is the day when Christians celebrate the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the throne of God. So, you know, uh, 40 days after the death and or the resurrection of Jesus, I should say, Jesus ascends up to the right hand of God, and he's seated there with him forever, and he's interceding for us. And so it, there's no doubt right, that this text, I think, speaks to Christ himself and to the, the need for having someone who is pure and holy who can ascend to the throne of God. And it shows us that this king who's going to come before God is also God himself. So there's a lot of just clear messianic themes here, and this is a crucial text on this theme of the kingship of God. We've seen how for the last several Psalms, Psalms 15 and 24, there's been this big theme of kingship. And so there's these kind of parallel Psalms, and in the middle of this group of Psalms, there's Psalm 19, the famous Torah Psalm focused on the Word of God. And so that's really important structure because it shows us, of course, the Word of God is central to the king's function. The, the king was supposed to be true to God's word, to write a copy of God's law, to hide it in his heart, and that's how he would rule well. So this, this text, though, is very important about the, this theme of kingship, and it shows us this building theme that we've seen in the last few, that really it's, it's Yahweh who is the king. We saw in Psalm 22 that kingship belongs to the Lord. That's Psalm 22, 28. And in Psalm 23, we saw this title of shepherd, which was used of the kings of Israel, specifically of David, the, the forerunner of the kings of Israel, that they're called the shepherd of Israel. And here, David starts off in Psalm 23.1 by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is the true king. He's the true ruler. And then in this psalm, it's even more explicit, right? It asks the question, who is this king of glory? And the answer is Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, is that king of glory. So some people think that this psalm may also function as a liturgy of sorts. You'll notice as you read it that there's a kind of a question and answer format. A question is asked, an answer is given. So some people speculate this was used in worship as a worshiper would come near to the temple. The priest would ask the question, right? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the response would come from the worshipers that they need to have clean hands and a pure heart. So there's kind of this back and forth that was happening. 
Um, maybe when the Ark of the Covenant came back with the armies of God from a battle, there would be this uh, exaltation, this, uh, you know, this asking of, well, who is this king of glory and receiving of the Ark into the, the temple again? So we don't know that for sure, but it's an interesting idea that's happening here. So the outline of this is pretty simple. Verses 1 and 2 is the creator king. Verses 3 to 6 is the holy king. And then verses 7 to 10 is the conquering king. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 first, the creator king, the creator king. The psalm opens up with such a comprehensive statement about God's creation and his rule over that creation that he made. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So the, the word the Lord comes first in this sentence in Hebrew, and it's emphatic. So it's, it's really saying everything belongs to God. That's the emphasis. Um, the earth itself belongs to God, but not just the earth, the fullness of it, meaning everything within the earth, everything that's found on earth belongs to God. And not only that, but the second part of the verse shows us that all the living creatures as well, the world and those who dwell therein. So everything that lives, everything that exists, everything belongs to God. God's rule is comprehensive because he has created everything. We see the Apostle Paul quote this verse in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's speaking in the context of food offered to idols. And he reminds us that nothing belongs to these false gods, right? The earth itself, the, the stuff of this world, belongs to God who is the ruler. Everything um, that we receive, everything that's not sinful, can be received with gladness because it belongs to God. And therefore, it is a gift from Him. So we see this comprehensive statement of God's rule. Because He's the creator of everything, He is the ruler. So it's, it builds on that thought in verse 2 by emphasizing His creation. Verse 2 says, For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is emphasizing how fixed and firm the world is, that it's immovable because God has grounded it, founded it upon the seas. Now, this is an interesting statement because the seas for the ancients were this source of evil and chaos. That's kind of what they, they uh, embodied or depicted. In the Canaanite creation myth, Baal, the, the, the kind of top deity of the Canaanites, had to subdue the god of the sea in order to become king. He had to defeat the sea, defeat the water in order to rule. But here it's depicting something very different. It's not showing God as in competition with the waters, struggling against them and asserting his dominance over them. It's showing God as using the seas, the waters, as part of his good creation. And so we see the biblical standpoint that God is the only God, that no one competes with him. No one vies with him for power, and he's not struggling to rule. He not only rules over the seas, but he creates out of them. They're not competitors with Yahweh. They're something he has complete control over. And so the first two verses point to God as the creator, but also as the sovereign ruler. Because he has created, because he has fixed things in their place, because there is stability in the world from God, he is shown to be the sovereign. Abraham Kuyper, the famous theologian, said, and this is another famous quote of his, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
everything that exists belongs to God and is being used for his ultimate purposes. And so what a great opening to this psalm that, that shows us just who God is. And we can see how the psalmist David, as he's writing this, he's informed by Genesis chapter 1. He's going back to the beginning, affirming God's creation, how he's clearly meditated on this truth from Genesis 1 of how God created the world. And here he's reflecting on it to say God is the creator and therefore he is sovereign. He's the ruler over all. The next section is verses 3 to 6, which show us the holy king. So we've seen the creator king first. Now we see the holy king. There's really this abrupt shift here from the unmovable nature of creation and the kingship of God to all of a sudden focusing on worship. But the themes of, of worship and of God's creation are very closely linked. Um, creation is meant to evoke worship. God created us so we would respond to him in worshiping and acknowledging his kingship and his rule over everything. And so we're supposed to worship the God who is holy. And without worshiping God, without honoring God for who he is, there's no ultimate stability or security on this earth. So these two themes are closely related and they build on each other. Look at verse three. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So the question is asked in verse three. It's going to be answered in the following verses. The, but who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? What, what is this speaking of? Well, that word hill is also the word for mount or mountain. <clears throat> so he's asking who's going to go up the hill of God? Well, what's he referring to? The first thing that comes to mind for the reader of Scripture who's been closely reading it is the temple. Right? The temple was placed on a hill, on a mount, not how we would think of a mountain, right? which is this you know, thousands of feet tall, but on this hill in Jerusalem. The temple was the highest place in the city of Jerusalem. This was common for temples in the ancient times, and it was true of the Jerusalem temple. It was on Mount Zion. And even if you see Jerusalem today, if you see a picture of it or if you go and you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look over the city, there's going to be one thing that is clearly prominent above everything else, and that is the Dome of the Rock. I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. Maybe you didn't know that was the Dome of the Rock, but this golden domed mosque, or it's not really a mosque, but it's you know mosque-like building on the, on the Temple Mount. So that's where the temple for Jerusalem in Jerusalem would have been. And it is elevated and it is high. So just like that stands out today, the Dome of the Rock, in the same way the temple would have stood out above everything else. <clears throat> so it's not just, though, the temple mount that it was a mountain. Mountains play a very important role in the biblical narrative. Um, it, the first mountain we see is actually Eden itself. It's not explicitly said to be a mountain, but what we see here is that the waters of these different rivers flowed out from Eden. So if rivers are flowing out, as you know, right, water has to go down. So that means that Eden was a watershed, meaning it was the highest place. It was a mountain, in other words. So Eden is this mountain where God dwells with his people. We see that Sinai is also a mountain where God's law is received. Moses has to go up to God to receive God's law and to bring it back down to his people. Again, that we said the temple was on a mountain. The temple is meant to reflect Eden. And then Jesus Christ himself was crucified on a mount, on Golgotha, on, on Calvary. 
he died on a mountain, and it's on that mountain that he restored this access to God, right? He, he secured for us forgiveness by which we can know God and have a relationship with God. And the New Jerusalem as well will likely be on a mountain, right? It'll be up high, it'll be the highest place that we're going to to enter into the presence of God. So when he's speaking of the Mount of the Lord, I think he's the, the, the closest thing he's speaking to probably is that ultimate dwelling place of God. But there's a lot of, of meaning that we can see from this idea of these elevated places. It's where God dwells. It's how we can go up and enter into his presence. So the question of who will ascend the hill of the Lord is really, I think, a question of how can we enter into the presence of God? How can we come before God and have a relationship with him? So then the psalmist goes on to answer the question in verse 4, right? Who can be in the presence of God? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul uh, to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So he speaks here of someone who is righteous, again, in a comprehensive way. Inside and out, this person is righteous. They have clean hands, he says first. That word clean means innocent. Innocent hands. Well, what, what are innocent hands? Well, they're the opposite of guilty hands, right? Um, Isaiah one fifteen has a good example of this when uh, God is speaking and he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So these would be hands that have innocent blood on them, meaning your hands show your works, what you've done. And in this case, the hands of the people are full of blood. Someone who has clean hands or innocent hands is someone who doesn't have blood on their hands, whose outward actions are pure. They've done the right thing. And even, you know, this is sort of symbolized in how people would approach God. As they would come before God in the temple, they would have to cleanse their hands. They would have to wash themselves to remind themselves that they are dirty and they need to be cleansed by God. But here I think he's speaking to a much deeper cleanness, cleanness than just some sort of outward ritual. He's saying your actions, your actions are righteous. But then he goes deeper. He says they must also have a pure heart. It's not just that the outward actions of this person have to be pure. Also, his inward motivation and what he thinks about has to be pure. This is speaking to an inward righteousness. I I wonder if David, as he's writing this, doesn't think of the words that God said in reference to his own anointing as king. When God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So God rejects the older brother who looks impressive in order to go after the king who has the right heart. And that's David, right? So I wonder if David is thinking about his own story. But it's clear in the the narrative of David that David isn't the one who has perfect righteousness. He's not the one with perfectly clean hands. He ends up with blood on his hands because of his uh, betrayal of Uriah and his murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba. But I think David understands this principle that God cares about purity of heart and he's longing after someone who will be worthy to enter into the presence of God. So he has outward righteousness, his clean hands, he has a pure heart, inward righteousness, and then it says he does not lift up his soul to what is false. Um, in Psalm 25, 
verse 1 and 2, we see this phrase of lifting up the soul. So this is just the next psalm over. Uh, David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. So lifting up the soul is paralleled with trusting in God. So lifting up the soul has to do with worship and trust and has to do with what you delight in most of all. And David's saying, I'm not going to lift my soul up to vanity, to emptiness is the idea of what is false. Um, that, that term is often used in connection with idols. So he's saying, I'm not going to put my delight and find my satisfaction in worshiping false gods or doing things that are false. That's the kind of person that, ha- that can ascend to the throne of God and who does not swear deceitfully. So he's pure in his hands, his actions, in his heart, his motives, in, in his worship, and also in his speech. He speaks truth and does the right thing. I, I think of James chapter 3 where James says that if you can control your tongue, essentially, you're a perfect person. That's one of the hardest things in the world is to control what you say all the time. But this one, the one who can approach the throne of God, is that kind of a person. So it's clear as we read this that you and I don't have what it takes to be this kind of person, right? The, the only one who was this righteous, who both on his outward actions and in his heart of hearts is truly pure, is Jesus Christ. We may have good days and bad days. We may feel like we're pretty righteous at times, but if we honestly examine ourselves and ask if we follow God's commandments in our hearts, we all have to say we fall short. We continually fall short. So here, the psalm, I think, is clarifying in so many words that you and I don't have a right to come to the mountain of God. Think about Adam and Eve after they were expelled from the Mount of Eden and how that cherubim was placed there with a flaming sword to remind them that they didn't have access to God, that they were kept away from the tree of life. That's the same as what this text is doing. It's saying we can't come before God because we're not pure. But we have hope because there is one, and his name is Jesus Christ. We stand on this side right, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and so we see a little more of the big picture here, and we see that there was one who was like this. It was Jesus himself. Verse 5 says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the result of this kind of pure life is that you receive blessing from God. And when Jesus receives blessing from God, he in turn gives blessing to us. He becomes the conduit of God's blessing to God's people. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. Righteousness could mean vindication is kind of the idea. Um, So even though this one is already righteous, he's receiving that declaration of righteousness from God. He's being, when he's in trouble and he's in hardship, his cause is being vindicated in the long run. And then verse six has this kind of strange shift. It says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. So there's a quick shift from speaking about this one who is righteous to a whole generation. So what does this refer to? Well, Jim Hamilton argues that what's happening here is that David is speaking of those who have been made righteous by Christ. So he goes from the singular of this kind of person can approach the throne of God to saying the generation of those who seek God are the same in a sense, or they share things in common 
with this one who can ascend the throne of God because they are seeking the face of Christ. That word generation <clears throat> can be a little bit confusing for people. So the word in Hebrew and in Greek can refer to a period of time, but more broadly, it refers to a type of people, a tribe or people of a certain origin or a certain group. Um, <clears throat> so here it's referring clearly to the generation of the righteous. So it's not a time-bound period. It, again, it can be used that way, but here it's clearly referring to a type of person. This type of person endures. And I, and I think we have you know, Psalm 14 that references the same thing. It says, God is with the generation of the righteous. It would be wrong to think, well, what, what 20 years or 30 years, whatever, is that generation? Um, there's never been that generation, right? But speaking of a type of person, and I think one, you know, one of the big questions with one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, Matthew 24, is what does generation mean? And I think this is consistent with how it's used throughout the scripture. It can mean a period of time or it can mean a kind of person. And so that helps. That could be a solution to that challenging text. So how can we hope to ascend the mountain of God? Well, he's saying here that we can be righteous, we can be like Jesus, not because of our own purity of actions, but I think implied because of what Christ does for us. Isaiah 53, 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the righteousness of this perfect one who can ascend the throne of God is given as a gift to his people. It's bestowed on them as a gift because of his sacrificial death. Isaiah 53 prophesies it, and we see it come true in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the mark of these righteous people is that they seek God. They seek the face of the God of Jacob. That, that language is so interesting. You know, a couple years ago, we taught through the, the whole book of Genesis at our church, and the story of Jacob was a, a fantastic one. And one of the things we see in Jacob's story is that he sees God. He encounters God face to face in this wrestling match that occurs. It's an amazing story. So I think there's an illusion here that just as Jacob was able to see God or, or you know, be with God face to face, that we too, as we seek after God and we receive this gift of righteousness, we're one day going to see God face to face. Now let's get to the last section here, verses 7 to 10, the conquering king. So that the psalm ends with this really beautiful poetic language at the end. This very repetitive, and um, it's you know I think of uh, a song from this passage as well that I, that I know. But this repetition is very forceful. It's very beautiful. I'll read the kind of the whole section, and we'll look at the ideas because it repeats twice. Verse seven: Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. And such a great, great passage to end here. So a couple of things. So the gates and doors are being personified here, clearly. It's as if they're guarding the way to this holy mountain and they've started to droop, maybe because of the weariness of decades and centuries and millennia of waiting for the king of glory to come in. Um, 
but he says here, lift up your head. So this is the idea of, of being expectant, right? It's pointing to hope that he's going to come in, that there's joy as God's people get to receive him in, in this act of worship. And he speaks of the ancient doors, which could be translated as the everlasting doors. So I think this is part of the reason why I would take this as speaking of the king coming into the very presence of God in the heavenly realm or in the new heavens and new earth. So the king of glory is coming in, and who is he? How do we identify this king? We've seen a lot of talk about the kind of person that can approach God and the blessing you'll receive from God. So who can be that kind of person? Who is this king who's coming into the presence of God? Well, it says Yahweh is the king of glory. The Lord is the king of glory. How does that work? How, how do we have the Lord being the king who's approaching God and also God being God who's being approached by the king? How do we have God being both of those roles? Well, for us, again, we stand on this side of the incarnation, so we understand that Jesus Christ is both the one who approaches God and wins salvation for God's glory, and he himself is God. We understand the Trinity, at least in basic terms, right? That there's Father, Son, and Spirit, and all of them are one. They're united as God in this perfect unity. And here we see that being played out, that this conquering king is coming in, and the king is God himself. And he's depicted as this, this conqueror, this strong and mighty warrior, and he's described as the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Um, we, uh, we always sing, you know, the a mighty fortress is our God, and there's that line in it, Lord Sabaoth, his name. And that's what this is. It's That's the, that's the translation would be the Lord of hosts. Um, that, that term is a military term. Don't, don't mistake that. That is a clear military term, that he's the, the king of the host, the armies of heaven. He is the king of glory. You know, there's so many military references to God in these Psalms we've been in recently, that God is a warrior, he's a conqueror, and he's the one who comes to his people, he conquers for his people, and he pours out blessing on his people. So a few thoughts as we, we wrap up this psalm. One is that God is in control. He is the king. And we can't have Jesus as our savior and not have him as our Lord, our ruler, our master as well. He rules over everything. And so he has to rule over the lives of his people. And so obedience to God is so important because we're acknowledging the rule and reign of Christ. And that day-to-day struggle to, to become more pure, to, to fight to, for the truth, to, to be more like Christ is a way that we show how glorious and good and powerful he is. Uh, another thing I thought about as I was reading this is think about the qualifications God could have put in terms of a relationship with him, of coming into his presence. He could have put you know, your fame or your accomplishments or your wealth or any of those kinds of external things that we might put. But what he puts at the front is purity, uh, a heart for God, right? doing the right thing, honoring and obeying God, um, Man, that, that's amazing how much God values the heart in worship. And then the last thing we can see is just because we've seen Christ in his humiliation doesn't mean he won't one day come in glory. He's won the victory right on the cross, and he's going he's gonna to finish that victory one day when he comes again. And we're going to see God in his glory, Christ in his glory, coming again. And the entire universe will respond in worship.